Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. If you have your Bibles today, I want to ask you to take them and open them with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 10, for this morning's message and for our time together uh, here today as we open God's Word. Today we begin a brand new sermon series entitled, One Another. One Another. All throughout God's Word, we are reminded of the importance of living not for self, but for the glory of God and for the good of others. We're to live for the glory of God and for the good of others. Both the Old and the New Testaments are filled with numerous statements, hundreds of statements actually, that describe the importance of loving God, but also how we are to live with one another. In fact, so important is this theme and so clear are the instructions that over 200 times in the Bible, God tells us something about our dealings with one another. In fact, over 140 times in the New Testament alone, God gives direct instruction to say, this is how you are to care for one another. This is how you are to serve one another. This is how you are to help one another. The fact of the matter is this morning, I can't think of a time, at least in my life, where we ever needed to hear this message more than we do today. We live in a culture today where the voices of the culture and the agenda behind it continually feed our fleshly nature to look out for self first. No doubt we are a diverse people. We are diverse sometimes in our race. We are diverse in our background. We are diverse in our various life experiences. We are diverse in our likes and in our dislikes. We are a different, we have all sorts of differences amongst us. These various perspectives and viewpoints can be a great strength as they bring us to a place of health and understanding, to a place of, of balance in life. But unfortunately, when we buy into the me first mentality and make ourselves more important than others, these differences instead cause great divisions. We see that in many different ways today. It doesn't take long to turn on the news and watch the current events of our culture and our world today to find that we are a greatly divided people. Even in our own nation, we are a greatly divided people. Even in our state, we are a greatly divided people. And sadly, in many ways, at times, even in the church, we can be a divided people. One of the simple practical ways maybe that we can illustrate that is in just a simple little way, and that would be with this little thing that we have come to understand is called a mask. Mine feels more like a little cheap t-shirt, if you ask me, but nonetheless, it's, it's a mask. And the fact of the matter is, is that there can be very two differing opinions and perspectives on this little thing in our world today. For example, there are some on one far side because of concern and caution, they, which is understandable. Many cases, they look at this and they say, well, absolutely everybody has to do this. But the fact of the matter is, sometimes we can go to so far of an extreme to conclude that anyone who is not wearing this thing must not really care about other people. They must not love others. On the other hand, there's this other far side, this other far pole, if you will, where people look at this thing and they say, hey, this whole thing's a conspiracy. 
This whole thing's a, a government politicized agenda, and as a result, I'm not going to wear it. And, and the, un- the unfortunate reality is, is if that's our view, we can easily allow an arrogance to creep in where we think that we are right and that other people are weak for wearing such a mask. What I'm saying to you is that there's two very differing perspectives, two very different opinions. But please, what I want to say is this. Both extremities can easily buy into a selfish, me-first culture which refuses to show the grace, kindness, and mercy that we see in Jesus. As a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, as a disciple of his, the fact of the matter is this morning, I am not called to live for myself, but ultimately for the glory of God and for the good of others. And as a result, every child of God should willingly and gladly lay down their rights so that we might commit ourselves completely to the things that bring glory to the Lord and edification to others. Fact of the matter is this morning, regardless of which position you take on masks, just for example, regardless of whether you're over here or over here or somewhere in between, regardless of which political party you stand with, regardless of whether you are supporting or denouncing professional sports, regardless of whether you kneel or stand, for the believer, for the child of God, for the person called by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as a Christian, please understand, our calling is far more important than the cultural issues of the day that seek to divide and to hinder. Please understand, as a child of God, it doesn't matter whether there's a mask or not. It doesn't matter if I vote this way or vote that way, whether I support this sport or I don't. What matters is this. Am I following the Lord Jesus Christ, and am I making him known to the world around me? Am I being identified as a Christian, not by what I say, but by how I live? God calls us in his word in Luke chapter 10 to understand the importance of a right relationship with him, and then out of that relationship, a right relationship with others. And we're going to study that over the next several weeks as we look at this series called One Another. Today we're beginning with the most common one another found all throughout Scripture. In fact, from the Old Testament, but especially in the New Testament, it is the most significant, the most important, the most repeated one another throughout Scripture. The reason I believe it's the most repeated is because of this. Every other one another that we're going to study has at its foundation the one that we study today. And that is this, God has called us first and foremost as a child of God to love one another. To love one another. If you got a neighbor nearby, look at him right now and say, love one another. Love one another. That's what the Lord is calling us to today. The word love, as you know, has become a catch-all word for a million different things in our world today. We might say, as we have our big bowl of ice cream, man, I love this ice cream. We might say, as we watch the kickoff of a football game, man, I love this football team. We might watch a movie with our family. We might say, man, I love that movie. We might look at our pet, and we might say, man, I, I love that dog. And then at the same time, we might look over at our spouse and say, I love you, honey. That word love is a catch-all for all sorts of expressions because often in our culture, we look at love as, as a series of emotions, of a series of feelings. It's a, it's a series of expressions where we give our affection. But the fact of the matter is love is far more than that. Love is not just about us. It's not just about how we feel. It's not just about the emotions of the moment. It goes much deeper than that. 
I'm reminded of how quickly our love can be very self-focused, if you will, by what has been popular of a story called the love letter, love letter Lament. As one young lady wrote to her former fiancé, she said, Dearest Jimmy, no words could ever express the great unhappiness that I felt since breaking our engagement. Please say you'll take me back. No one could ever take your place in my heart, so please forgive me. Honey, I love you, I love you, I love you. Yours forever, Marie. P.S. And congratulations on winning the state lottery. That often defines the way that we love. We love from our own selfish perspective. But the fact of the matter is, God is calling us to recognize in his word and through this series that love is far more than that. Love is about a devotion, a commitment, a selfless sacrificial service that is given to another. John 13, verses 34 through 35, Jesus said it this way, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one another. Notice what he said. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Notice Jesus didn't say, if you are so strong in all your theology, if you know all the dogmatic arguments to various things. God didn't say that you, Jesus didn't say we'd be known as his disciples by our great religion, our great creed, our great stand for politics, whether we were an Alabama fan or not. No, he said we would be known by our love for one another. Love is a choice and an act of the will that as a follower of Jesus, we must choose. And I believe God is calling us to see today that he's called us to love one another. Luke chapter 10 this morning, we're going to look at a pastor's scripture that is probably familiar to you. And I believe it sets in an incredible way the framework for what it means to love one another and the framework for this one another series as we move forward. If you're physically able, would you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? We're going to begin reading Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and read down to verse 37. The Bible says this, And a lawyer stood up and put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, pause for just a moment. This man was a lawyer. He was influential. He was educated. He was articulate. He was wealthy. He was a Jew. He was religious. And yet he knew something was still lacking. So he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? I don't have satisfaction in my soul. I don't know that I know God like I ought. I've got all these things going that the world says to do, but it's not enough. How can I know that I have eternal life? Jesus looked at him, the Bible says in verse 26, and said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Verse 30, Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. He came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. 
He put him on his beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Jesus asked a question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, simple answer, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the time that we have gathered here together. I thank you for the important reminder that you've called us to love one another. God, I pray today that we would not be just called in the idea that we've got to be right, that we've got to be focused on our perspective and opinion, but instead, God, may we look to you today that you would work in each of our hearts to draw us close to yourself. If there's anyone here today that does not have that gift of eternal life and they're still longing, God, I pray today that today would be their day of salvation. And for all who are saved, may today be a day where we get right with you and right with one another. And may it all be for the glory of Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Love one another. God, as you know, has much to say about how we should love one another. In fact, he led Paul to write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, these simple words. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. God led Peter to write in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, these words. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So keep growing in your love, but also be fervent and your love for one another from the heart. God led John to write in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, for this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. God has much to say in his word about you and I having love for one another. But I believe God shows us in Luke chapter 10 and in Mark chapter 12 and in other passages of scripture that if we're going to love one another well, there is something that we must understand first, loud and clear. This morning, as we look at Luke chapter 10, I want us to see two things primarily from the pastor scripture. The first is this. I want you to see a right relationship with God, a right relationship with God. Many people want to have a right relationship with man. They want to have a right relationship within their household, within their family. They want to have a right relationship with their coworker or their neighbor across the street. But the fact of the matter is this morning is this. We will not have a right relationship with man as God wants it to be unless we first have a right relationship with God. The idea of loving one another does not come as a surprise to us. It is messaged all throughout our culture even today. But God wants us to see from his word, if we're going to have a love for each other like we ought to, it must begin with a love for God like it ought to be in our life. The Bible tells us that every single person who professes Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that at the moment of salvation, we are forgiven and cleansed and saved, but we are adopted into the family of God. And as literally being a part of the family of God, it means that God has cleansed us. He's brought us into his own. He's written his law on our hearts. And one of the key evidences of that is how we love one another. 1 John, as we'll see in a moment, repeatedly reminds us of the importance of loving one another and how it demonstrates we are a part of God's family. Galatians chapter 5 says that the first fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of love. The point is God wants us to be a people who love one another. Why? Because love is from God and God is love. Love was not made, I'm sorry ladies, by a Hallmark movie channel, okay? 
Love was not made by some hopeless romantic man along the way. No, love is from God. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 says it this way. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? Because love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. There's no way we can love others the way we are unless we first have the love of God in our hearts and lives. In Luke chapter 10, a Jewish lawyer came to Jesus to ask that question. What can I do to inherit eternal life? Well, of course, the quick answer is there's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. There's no work that you can do to earn God's grace and God's salvation. There's nothing you can do to make yourself personally right with God apart from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus didn't correct his question. He just looked back at him and said, well, what does the law say? Jesus asked that because he knew that in examining the law, the man would quickly come to the conclusion that he was missing something. And so notice that the man did not even repeat the entirety of the Ten Commandments, nor did he repeat all of the 623 Pharisaical laws of the day. He simply said, well, there's two primary commandments, Jesus. First, you got to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second, got to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus then looked at him and he simply said this, do these and you'll live. I tell you what, buddy, if you can just do these two commandments, you, you, you will live. Of course, what Jesus understood in that moment was, even though the guy had narrowed it down to simply two commandments, he still had fallen short of the law. He still was just like you and me. He was an imperfect person. The Bible tells us he looked at Jesus and said, oh, here's the first and greatest commandment. He knew this. He was well-versed in the Jewish religion. He was well-versed in the Old Testament. See, whenever he gave this answer, that you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6 in what we know today as the Shema. That's a weird word, so go ahead and say it and make you feel a little better. Would you say Shema? Shema. Like, what in the world does that mean? Well, the word literally means to hear or to listen. And Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Bible tells us that God looked at the people speaking through Moses, and he said this, Hear, O Israel... The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. When you go back and study that pastor scripture, what you quickly understand is that God was looking at his people, the people whom he had chosen to be his people, the people that he had brought out of nothing to make them something, the people that he'd brought out of despair and given them hope and life. And he said, listen, hear, O Israel, listen, the Lord our God, he is one. In other words, he's saying he is the one true living God of heaven. There are none others. There is no one like him. There's none apart from him. He's the one true God. God of heaven. But not only did he tell them that incredible understanding that he's the one true God of heaven, he told them how to respond. And that is he called them to love him with all of their being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. He would prove that he was God and God alone over and over again, all throughout the Old Testament, but it demanded a response. And that response was a response of love and devotion to God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, God said it this way, you shall simply love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. God even told them how to make sure they didn't forget it and how they didn't grow cold and how they didn't forget what God was calling them to do. It was such a conviction of the Israelites that this Shema became a prayer. It became such a rallying cry that even today in traditional Jewish homes, the people will say this as a prayer, that the Lord our God is one, therefore we should love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. 
Fast forward to Luke chapter 10. When the lawyer asked Jesus about the greatest law, he already knew the answer. He knew clearly that he should love the Lord as God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Think of that for a moment. It causes me to pause for a moment and ask, do I love God in that way? Do I express my love for God in this way? Do I have a right relationship with him? Do I love him with all my heart? That's with all my affection, all my emotions, all my even passion. Am I giving that to the Lord in relationship with him? Do I love him with all my soul, with my innermost being, at the core of who I am? Am I really about God or am I really all about me? Do I love God with my heart, with my soul? Do I love him with my mind? That's with my thoughts, with my meditations, with the things that I'm pondering on. Are my thought life consumed by the latest news on ESPN or the latest news on CNN? Or is my thought life consumed with the truth of God and of who he is, of the scriptures that he's unfolded for us, of the mysteries yet to be revealed? Is my life, is my heart, is my mind all about God or about me? But I'm also to love him with all of my strength. That's with my energy, my effort. That's with, with all of my work, that literally my hands being put to labor, to put to work. Am I loving God with all of my strength? Or am I using my labors only to build my own kingdom and benefit me? See, the man understood that loving God was the greatest priority. It's greatest because if we love God like we ought, everything else will naturally follow. If our relationship with God is in order, everything else can be in order. But if our relationship with God is not in order, it doesn't matter what we will do, there will still be something lacking and missing. The lawyer had much that the world had to offer. He even had the knowledge that he should love God. But something was still missing. The question for us today is simply this, do we love God supremely? Do we give God all of our affection, all of our passion? Do we spend our time thinking upon his word and his will? Do we give our energy and effort and our service to him? This lawyer was content to know the right answer. But we see in his practice that something was greatly missing. I want to remind us this morning that the Bible tells us there are many people who claim to love God, but they're lacking in these areas of their love for God. Jesus himself said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. There will be an evidence there in a right relationship with him. In other words, love for the Lord is demonstrated by a devoted relationship and faithful obedience to the Lord. This man understood the importance of a right relationship with God, but something was still lacking. Which brings us to the second point, and that is this. We understand the importance of a right relationship with man. He said, the first commandment, all that simple, Jesus, is to love, your, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But there's a second commandment, Jesus, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus looks at him, I think, in my terminology, and he says, oh, that's an interesting statement there, buddy. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does that look like? The man thinks of it for a moment. He's convinced that he has done this. All the two commandments are easy. Love the Lord your God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm good. I've done it. Because in his mind, he thought he was fine. I want to remind you, he knew this answer because Jesus himself had already declared these were the greatest commandments. Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, Jesus explained, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to what Jesus went on to say. He said, there is no other commandments greater than these. The lawyer happily repeats the truth because he's convinced that he has fulfilled these things. 
But I want to remind every single one of us today, many of us can claim to love God and claim to love others. But the proof is not found in our profession. It is found in our practice. It is found in our practice. One of the reasons the world knows nothing of the love of Christ is because they see so little of it in the lives of those who claim to be followers of Jesus. Think of that for just a moment. From the world's perspective, we can talk about Jesus. We can say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We can talk about God's love for the entire world. But if they are not seeing it evident in our lives and in our demeanor, if they're not seeing it in the way that we care for others and the way that we show compassion for others, please understand, they're not going to believe the truth. If Jesus is the Lord of our lives, ultimately we should live for him, but also we should love like him. This man understood the answer but he wasn't living it out. And so Jesus begins to point him to a reality that he needed to see. There are many who claim to know God, but do not love others. John said it this way in 1 John chapter 4, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In other words, our relationships with others, as I've said before, reveals an incredible amount and it reveals a great deal about our relationship with God. So I ask you for the remainder of our time together in God's Word to examine and consider this simple question. What is your re- relationship with others? What is your relationship with others or lack thereof revealing to you today about your relationship with God? How's your relationship with others? Is there anybody you got something against? Anybody you're looking down at? Anybody you're so hurt with, you can't move forward? Anybody you look at, you just, man, that's just so ridiculous. I can't believe they'd do that. I can't believe they'd say that. I can't believe they'd, they'd have that opinion. Our relationship with others reveals far more about our relationship with God than we realize. And God is getting, Jesus is getting this man to realize this. The fact of the matter is this morning is simply this. If we have a right relationship with God, we will strive to have a right relationship with others. That does not mean we're going to have a perfect, close, exciting relationship with everybody. That doesn't mean we're going to get along with everybody. There are some people who don't want to be gotten along with. But if we're a follower of Jesus, if we love him or living for him, we're going to strive to live peaceably with everyone. If we're in right relationship with God, we can show godly love to others. And what does that look like? 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that godly love, here's what it looks like. It is patient. It is kind. It isn't jealous, it doesn't brag, it isn't arrogant, it doesn't act inappropriately, it doesn't seek its own, it isn't provoked, it doesn't take into account a wrong suffered, it bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, and this love endures all things. Which brings us to Luke chapter 10. Jesus listens to the man, you should love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus looks and says, that's right, do those things and you'll live. Then he asked a question, thinking about it. What do you think? Okay, I'm, I'm pretty confident, Jesus, that I, I love God like I'm supposed to, but I'm not really sure about that second part. So, Jesus, can you tell me who is my neighbor? Because I don't know if I love that specific person you're referring to. So, so tell me, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus begins to tell a story. Now, some debate on whether this is a parable or not. But the fact of the matter is Jesus tells a story. And he says, well, let me tell you about a story. There's a man... He left 
Jerusalem. He was on a journey, the Bible tells us, and he went down to Jericho. And as he was on the way, he fell among some robbers. There were some people there who took advantage of him. They beat him up. They beat him literally. They beat him. They took everything they had. They left him in the ditch. They left him there half dead. This man was in a hopeless, horrible, terrible situation. He was a victim of a terrible crime. This Jewish man had likely been to Jerusalem to worship, and he's left there, and now he's been taken advantage of, and he's literally left for dead. But all of a sudden, as he's left for dead, Jesus tells a story about a priest. The good news for this man is that a priest began to to come his way that day. Now, the priest would be a religious leader of the day. The priest is the individual who would be there in the temple, who, of course, was there responsible to offer sacrifices to God. Religious man, a very well-respected man, an influential man in his culture. The people would likely have been excited, all oh, this is good, there's a hopeless man, but thank God, here's a priest that's on his way. But Jesus tells a story, and he says, now listen, as the priest approached, he saw the man. He saw his bloodied body. He saw him left half dead. He saw him there in the most vulnerable situations. Jesus doesn't tell us why, but we kind of get the perspective that maybe he was in too high of a position to humble himself. Maybe he didn't have the time that, to take the time for this man. Maybe, maybe someone else could stoop down to that situation and help that man in need. After all, if the priest were to get the blood of that man all over him, he would be considered unclean at the temple for worship. Oh, my position's too great. I, I can't do that. I don't have time for that. I, I, someone else can do this. And so what does the priest do? The Bible tells us, Jesus said, not only did the priest ignore him, but the priest went by on the other side of the road and he went on his merry way, not even giving a second thought to the man he had left behind in desperation. But then Jesus tells us, you know, not long after that, there was a second man, a Levite, who came that way. Now, a Levite was a hard worker. A Levite was, was intellectual in the sense that they helped to protect the various laws of the, of, of, the, of the Pharisees, for that matter, and of the Jews, but they also were individuals who helped to prepare all the animals for the sacrifices. They had an extremely uh, great amount of responsibility. So here's the Levite. The Levite comes his way, and I'm sure the people were, were anticipating, this is great, okay, the priest didn't help him, but good, God sent someone else. There's another godly messenger, someone else who will be a, a friend to this person in need. Here comes the Levite. The Levite looks and sees the man as well. He sees the blood. He sees the sores. He, he sees the, the, the position of, of destitution and of poverty. There's nothing that, that this man has on him. Literally, it's almost like he's, he's just stripped bare and he's there. The Levite could have done something. Maybe he determined he had just been gone too long and needed to get home. Maybe he was tired from a week of ministry. Maybe he was running late to his post. We don't know. All we know is Jesus tells us, by the way, he too rejected the man, passed by on the other side, and went on his way. The man had asked a question about who his neighbor was. He understood the commandment to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He understood the importance of loving neighbors as yourself. But he didn't see a neighbor in this illustration. All he sees is two men who are rejecting the man who is in need. And it's in that exact point that Jesus begins to tell us something very interesting. Jesus says, now let me tell you for a moment about a third visitor who came by. Let me tell you about a moment, for a moment, about this man known that simply that we call the good Samaritan. 
Jesus is bringing us to a contrast to show us something. He's bringing us to a contrast to show us that true loving, our truly loving our neighbor, it's not about a philosophical idea. It's not about rhetoric. It's not about some theorizing in our mind. But true uh, sacrificial love is seen in our actions. You know, it's amazing how a child understands that. A child understands how love is more than just an expression or just an emotion. It's an action of sacrifice and of faithfulness. I was reading the other day of a survey of a bunch of children out west. They were asked specifically to give their definition of love, to describe what love is. Now, it caught my attention because I anticipated that they would describe love from the context of what they're seeing on the Hallmark Channel and other places. But notice how the kids describe love. Rebecca, age eight, described love as this. Here's what she said, quote, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore, so my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when he has arthritis in his hands. That's love. I like Rebecca's illustration. Billy, age four, here's how he described love. Quote, he said, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. <laughs> I like that. Chrissy, age six, says, love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. To that, I say, man, I could go for some waffle fries right now, but it's Sunday, all right? Danny, age seven, says this, love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy, and she takes a sip before giving it to him just to make sure it tastes okay. I'm sure that's what she's really doing. Noel, age seven, says, quote, love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt, and then he wears it for you every day. Noel's been watching too many Hallmark movies. That's what I'm thinking. Tommy, age six, says this, love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. And my personal favorite, Elaine, age five, you can tell she grew up in South Alabama because here's what she said, love is when my mommy gives daddy the best piece of fried chicken, okay? So, Pastor, what are you saying? I'm saying to you that even a child understands that love isn't just a word. It's evident through sacrificial action. Jesus says, listen, you can claim to love your neighbor, but the proof is in the pudding. Notice what the Good Samaritan did. I believe Jesus points us to three specific things that the Good Samaritan did that he's calling us to do as we seek to love one another well. Notice what he did. Number one, if we're going to love one another well, we must show compassion to others. We must show compassion to others. Jesus looked in this parable and this story, if you will, as he's telling about the Good Samaritan. The Bible says, but there was a Samaritan who was on a journey who came upon him and he saw him. Think of that for just a moment. The very first thing the Samaritan did was very simple, and that is this. He saw the man. He saw him in the ditch. He, I believe as he saw him, he began to think through what had happened. He recognized at, that he had been hurt. He recognized the blood that was there. He recognized that the man couldn't get out of that situation on his own. It seemed like he had nothing there. Obviously, he was a victim of a crime. He saw him. He saw him. Not only did the Bible tells us that he saw him, the Bible tells us something specific. And he felt compassion for him. The Good Samaritan was not deterred by his race. The Good Samaritan was not deterred by his bloodied condition. The Good Samaritan was not deterred by the fact that he was 
poor. The good Samaritan does not give in to the feeling of hopelessness. Please understand, when Jesus said, now let me tell you about the Samaritan, it would have brought a cringe all over that lawyer. The Jews in that day hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a, if you will, a biracial people. They were the result of a relationship between Jew and Gentile. And as a result of that, the Samaritans were greatly despised. The Jews rejected them at every opportunity they could. There was religious divisions between them. There were political divisions between them. There were cultural divisions between them. So think of this for just a moment. Jesus took one of the most sensitive subjects of the day where there was a racial divide a cultural divide, and a political divide, and says, now let me tell you about the good Samaritan. Political, racial, and cultural division. Sounds like it happened so long ago, doesn't it? That would never happen in 2020. But Jesus says, now let me tell you about the good Samaritan. He saw the man in need. Brings about a question, doesn't it? Are we seeing others in need? Like, are we truly seeing them? Or are we just looking through eyes of judgment, eyes of arrogance? Are we seeking to understand? Are we seeking to observe the hurt? Are we seeking to to identify the need? Are we seeking to to, to bring about healing and help in ways that we can? Or are we just looking and saying, not worth my time, not worth the effort? Jesus saw the man, but in seeing him, he felt compassion. The word that's used here literally means he saw him with mercy. It would have been very easy for the Good Samaritan in this moment to say, finally, one of the Jews is getting what he deserves. It would have been very easy for the Samaritan to say, that's of no interest to me. I have no responsibility here. It's not my fault. It would have been very easy for the Good Samaritan in this moment to say, I'm on a journey. I've got other things to do. I've got another task. I've been preparing. I've been planning. I've got things to do, but he didn't. He saw the man with compassion. While the other two men saw a ridiculous soul, the good Samaritan saw a soul that could be rescued. While the others looked down with helplessness, the Samaritan looked down with hope of what could be done for the man. Because he acted with compassion, he moved on to a second step that we should do too. Not only must we show compassion, but secondly, notice what he did. That is simply this. He cared for the man. We must show compassion, but we must care for others. There are real needs, there are real hurts, there are real challenges, there are real issues. Literally, even even here in this field today, but even beyond it for sure, the Bible simply says this, Jesus looks and said, he felt compassion for him and he cared for the man. Literally, verse 34, he took care of him. The word that's used here describes a a nurturing, a ministering. It's the idea literally here of a a care that led to, to a healing with him, a nurturing, mending, helping kind of attitude. The Bible tells us of this good Samaritan that he had some measure of wealth as he makes his way on his journey. He has an animal for his journey. He has enough wine for the journey. He has oil for the journey. He has at least some sort of preparations of what he would need. And yet the Bible says when he sees the man in need, he takes the things that are his and he uses them to bless the man in need. Think of that for a moment. 
He stops what he's doing. He stops his journey. Yes, he's got responsibility. Yes, he's made his plans. Yes, he's got all these things in order, but he stops what he's doing. He's, he's not so proud that he can't stop. He's not so busy that he can't stop. He stops what he's doing. And, and the Bible gives us this picture here that he gets down into the ditch and he, and he finds the man that's laying there half dead and, and, and he kind of picks him up and then he, he takes his wine, his own personal wine, and he pours it into the wounds of this man. Why? Because it would cleanse the wounds that it laid bare and open. And then the Bible says that he, he takes the oil that he had. No doubt this oil was intended for him to bake bread on his journey. He takes the oil and he pours the oil on the wounds. Why? Because it would soothe the pain. And then he takes bandages. He, he bandages the guy up. He's caring for him. And then he, he picks the guy up. The guy can't do anything on his own. He can't stand up his own. He picks the guy up and, and he picks him up and he places the man on his own animal. You realize in this moment that the good Samaritan would now look as bloody and filthy and as dirty as the man left for dead? As the man's blood is all over his garments? Puts the man on his animal and he goes to the local inn. Pastor, what are you saying? What I'm saying to you is that simply this, we must care for others. The Samaritan did for this man what the man could not do for himself. Jesus is teaching us that loving one another is not about philosophical rhetoric or religious ritual, but it's about practical, measurable actions that are performed out of love for God and love for others. Brings a question, doesn't it? Right here in 2020, right here in the midst of a pandemic, right here in the midst of a world that's so politi politically charged, right here in the midst of all these things that we're seeing on the news and all these things that we're hearing and all this back and forth and rah, 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 and all this division and all this chaos and confusion. And Jesus is asking us, how are you loving your neighbor? How are you caring for others around you? How are you caring for those who've been terrified by this pandemic? How are you caring for those who have lost jobs and are in positions of financial uncertainty? How are you caring for those that are taking steps of precaution maybe that you're opposed to or don't agree with? How are you caring for those who stand on the other side of the aisle when it comes to politics or other issues that are dividing us? How are you loving your neighbor? Jesus shows us that only one of the men in this passage really cared. And his actions stand out loud and clear. And frankly, if we're examining our own against them, can be quite convicting. The third thing we see about being in a right relationship with man is simply this. Not only must we show compassion, not only must we care for others, but third, we must be willing to pay the cost of ministry. We must be willing to pay the cost of ministry. The fact of the matter is, this final point seems almost absurd when you consider what's happening. No one expected the good Samaritan of all people to be the one to stop to help a Jew but he did. No one expected the Samaritan to get down in the ditch with the man, but he did. No one expected him to take his own wine and his own oil and pour them out lavishly to minister to the man in need, but he did. No one expected him to give up his seat, his right, his privilege, and instead put the wounded man on it instead. No one expected that. No one expected this man to take this, this, this helpless man to, to the inn and literally to give money to the innkeeper to say, hey, hey, hey here, I'm going to pay this guy's bill. But notice what the Samaritan did. He took it a step further. Here's what he said. He said, on the next day, he took out two denarii. He gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, 
When I return, I will repay you. What incredible generosity. What incredible sacrifice and selflessness. What incredible love for a neighbor he'd never even met. He looks at the innkeeper and says, whatever else he owes you, when I come back, put it all on me. I'll pay the tab. I'll pay the bill. Put it all on me. I will cover the account. Well, it needed no explanation. This Samaritan was providing an example of what it truly meant to love a neighbor, to love one another as he sacrificially gave. Jesus gives the story, but then he asks the question, Jesus knew that the lawyer and, frankly, all the self-righteous people in the crowd wouldn't have wanted to hear about a Samaritan. So Jesus then looks with a question, and he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Frankly, the lawyer was filled with such disdain and disgust for the Samaritan that he would not even utter the words, Samaritan, the Samaritan. And said, here's what he said, the one who showed mercy towards him He's the one who proved to be a good neighbor. He's the one who showed love. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. I don't know if you can tell that in the text, but can I just explain what's happening in that moment? The Samaritan was only concerned with who his literal neighbor was. Jesus was more concerned about whether or not the lawyer was the neighbor he was supposed to be. In other words, Jesus was more concerned not about identifying this and identifying that, not about looking at other situations. Jesus was more concerned that the lawyer would look at his own heart and life, examine his own heart and life. It wasn't about who was his neighbor. It was about with, internally with him. Was he the neighbor that he was supposed to be? Did he love others the way that he was supposed to? Did he show care and compassion the way that he was supposed to? The question for us to consider is this. Are we loving our neighbor like we ought? Are we loving one another? Are we showing kindness, grace, and compassion? Are we demonstrating to the world around us who Jesus really is? What did he say in John 13? He said it loud and clear. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. By what? By your love for one another. Somebody would look at this illustration and say, but pastor, this is just a a parable perhaps. Jesus didn't give us any specific names, but yet I'm reminded Aren't the actions of the Good Samaritan eerily similar to the actions of the Good Shepherd who came and gave his life for us? The Good Samaritan saw the man bloodied and left for dead in a hopeless and helpless state. Jesus saw us lost in our sin, not only half dead, but dead in our trespasses and sins. He saw us in our hopeless and helpless state. There was nothing we could do to get out of that ditch, so to speak. There was nothing we could do to be saved. There was nothing we could do to be right with God. We were in a hopeless and helpless state. The Good Samaritan saw him, and he had compassion. Jesus saw us, and he looked down upon us, and he had compassion for us.
The Samaritan got down into that ditch and getting down in that ditch, he began to minister to the needs and he began to provide the ointment that was needed so that there could be cleansing, there could be healing. I'm reminded that Jesus didn't just look down from heaven. He came down from heaven and he came to this earth and he lived a sinless, perfect, spotless life and literally he gave his life on the cross for our sins. That Samaritan paid a debt that he didn't know and Jesus paid the greatest debt that we could never ultimately pay in ourselves. He gave his life for us on the cross. Why? So that we could be forgiven, so that we could be saved, so that we could be rescued so that just as that man could be made whole, that we could be made whole. Please understand what happened in that moment is Jesus gives this picture of a good Samaritan and this incredible, unconditional, sacrificial, selfless love. But it was an incredible picture of an even greater love that would be demonstrated when Jesus would show his love for us by giving his life on the cross. My encouragement, my challenge for us today is this, to first and foremost make sure that we have embraced the love of God through faith in Jesus Christ, recognizing that we were like the hopeless, helpless man in the ditch. In our sin, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. But the very next statement says in Romans 6, but the, great, but the gift of God, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We receive the gift of God's grace and salvation simply by calling upon Jesus to be our Lord and Savior, professing him as the Savior of our life. I would encourage you today, if you've not done that, you can. But if you have, I would encourage us today, let's not be called up. I know we live in a me-first culture, but as a child of God, God's called us to live in such a way that he is first. And when he is first, I'm not going to be concerned about my rights, my opinions, what I think. I'm going to be concerned about his will and the good of others. I want to encourage us. I realize we live in a day that is so politically charged and divided. But I pray for the glory of God and the good of others. We will be a, a people of God who love him and love others like we ought. That in everything we say and do, the world will see the love of Jesus in and through our lives. Let's not be like the lawyer. Oh, we know what we're supposed to do. Let's be like the good Samaritan and do it. And do it. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the time together. Thank you for the way that you speak to our hearts and lives. God, when I read this illustration of the good Samaritan, uh, it encourages me, it challenges me, and it convicts me. Because it is so easy at times to get caught up with what we think is right. It's so easy to be the priest or to be the Levite. Be religious. Have all the knowledge. Be certain of our argument. It's so easy to be the Levite that's busy and responsible and well-respected and trusted. But God, you've called us to love one another you gave us the illustration of that Samaritan who stopped and went to great lengths to show care and compassion, paid a great cost. God, I'm reminded, though, that Samaritan fell short. The only perfect example of what love is really like is Jesus. As he willingly came because you so loved the world, and Jesus willingly laid down his life so that we could be saved, so that we could be cleansed, so that we could be in right relationship with you and by your help with one another. God, I pray today that every single one of us 
know without a doubt that we have a right relationship with you. And God, if there's anyone who has that doubt, may today be a day where you bring them absolute clarity and assurance of their salvation. And God, I pray for all who are saved, that we today would be reminded of our calling to live for your glory and the good of others. God, I pray today that we would begin to walk in humility. We begin to walk in grace. That we begin to demonstrate love as a fruit of the Spirit in everything that we say and do. And we'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.